Good day and welcome. Uh, my name is Father Matt Malone. I'm the editor-in-chief of America Magazine. And uh, uh, welcome to our symposium today on this very special feast day in the life of the modern church. Since its, obsession, its, its inception, of course, the, the Catholic Church has taken a, a profound interest in the work of the United Nations. The church, after all, has to engage with the world if it is to fulfill its mandate to make disciples of all the nations and also to, to carry out the Lord's instructions to effect peace and justice among all people. In a forum such as the United Nations, the church has an important voice. And America Magazine has covered that voice, had the good fortune to cover the United Nations throughout the entirety of its existence. And we are glad to provide the historical reporting and opinion pieces from our archive that all registrants should have received by now. We are of course proud to be able to partner on this discussion today with the Lumen Christi Institute once again, and the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, the Permanent Observer Mission of the Holy See to the United Nations, as well as the Harvard Catholic Forum, the Beatrice Institute, the Calaim Institute, the Institute for Faith and Culture, the Institute for Human Ecology, the Nova Forum for Catholic Thought, and the St. Paul Catholic Center. We practically have the entire Kennedy Catholic Directory as, as a co-sponsor of this event, which is a wonderful thing to see. I'm particularly grateful to our speakers, His Excellency Archbishop Gabriel Katia, Permanent Observer of the Holy See to the United Nations, Professor Marianne Glendon of Harvard Law School, Mr. Joseph Donnelly, Caritas Delegate to the United Nations. And I'm also grateful to Professor Paolo Carazza, Professor of Law and Political Science, and the Director of the Kellogg Institute at the University of Notre Dame, who will be our moderator, and to whom I now turn over to today's discussion and invite him to unmute his microphone. Thank you so much, uh, Father Malone, for your warm welcome. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this panel discussion on the United Nations at 75, Catholic Perspectives. As you heard, my name is Paolo Carazza. I'm the director of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. And we're very pleased to be able to present this event to you in partnership, as you heard, with the Lumen Christi Institute, America Media, and the Permanent Observer Mission of the Holy See to the United Nations. The co-sponsorship of the Beatrice Institute, the Collegium Institute, Harvard Catholic Forum, Institute for Faith and Culture, Institute for Human Ecology, Nova Forum for Catholic Thought, and the St. Paul Catholic Center are also deeply appreciated as well. This month, the United Nations organization marks 75 years since its founding in 1945. At the time of its creation, the UN embodied high aspirations and ideals among the diverse peoples of the world. As it is expressed in the charter of the UN, its goals are no less than to bring an end to the scourge of war, to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights and in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations, large and small, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Over time, the United Nations has in many ways contributed vitally to the advancement of these universal human values. At the same time, even its most ardent defenders would have to recognize that the UN organization has not always lived up to those high ideals. 
Although it has accumulated both successes and failures over its 75 years of growth and evolution, in many ways it continues to represent the deep human yearning for unity and for cooperation in serving a universal common good. Those aspirations are also at the heart of the Catholic Church's engagement with the world. As put in the opening of the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, known better by its Latin title, Gaudium et Spes, quote, the joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted. These are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts. For this reason, there have always been deep convergences and sympathies between the goals and activities of the UN and the teaching and pastoral work of the Catholic Church. And many of the UN's achievements and initiatives have been supported and even led by lay Catholics who saw their belonging to Christ and their service to their fellow men and women as intertwined. At the same time, the church and her members have not hesitated to be critical of the UN at times, even sharply so, exhorting it to fulfill more authentically its calling to serve the dignity of human persons and integral human development and reproving it when it has failed to do so. So today we aim to explore more deeply some aspects of this complex but enduring relationship between the Catholic Church and the United Nations. The role of lay Catholics and church leaders in developing the human rights tradition, the role of Catholic NGOs as they work alongside the UN for justice, peace, religious freedom, and integral human development around the world. And our guests today are ideally situated to help us explore these questions. I will introduce them now to you briefly before they speak in succession. First will be His Excellency Archbishop Gabriele Giordano Caccia, the permanent observer of the Holy See to the United Nations in New York. Archbishop Caccia received his doctorate in sacred theology and licentiate in canon law from the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome and has since worked in the diplomatic service of the Holy See. His first assignment was at the Apostolic Nunciatur in Tanzania, where he served for two years before returning to Rome to work in the first section of the Secretariat of State of the Vatican. Later, he was appointed Assessor for General Affairs of the Secretariat of State. In 2009, Pope Benedict XVI named him Apostolic Nuncio in Lebanon and titular Archbishop of Sepino. In 2017, Pope Francis appointed him Apostolic Nuncio to the Philippines, where he served until his appointment in December of 2019 to the Vatican's Permanent Observer Mission to the United Nations. Following Archbishop Kacha, we will hear from Professor and former Ambassador Marianne Glendon, the Learned Hand Professor of Law Emerita at Harvard Law School. A renowned scholar in the fields of comparative law, constitutional law, human rights, political theory, Professor Glendon has received the National Humanities Medal and is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's the author of numerous articles and books, including most notably for the purposes of today's conversation, A World Made New, Eleanor Roosevelt and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Beyond the academy, Professor Glendon also has a distinguished record of service to both the United States and to the Holy See. She served as the United States Ambassador to the Holy See, chaired the US State Department Commission on Unalienable Rights, 
served on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and was a member of the U.S. President's Council on Bioethics. In 1995, she led the Vatican delegation to the International Beijing Conference on Women, and she served as president of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences for a full decade. Mr. Joseph Cornelius Donnelly, our third presenter in the panel, is currently the permanent delegate to the United Nations for Caritas Internacionales, a global Catholic confederation of 165 national member organizations serving in more than 200 countries and territories. As head of the Caritas delegation to the UN, New York headquarters, he is a primary advocate leading the engagement of faith-based organizations and other non-governmental non organizations with UN initiatives such as the Sustainable Development Goals. He has immense experience working for humanitarian and reconciliation, reconciliation efforts, both within the United Nations context and well beyond it. He has served as chairman of the NGO Working Group on the Security Council and has served on the multi-stakeholder advisory board of the United Nations Economic and Social Council. He's been part of the Central Africa Policy Forum the UN's Interagency Task Force Multi-Faith Advisory Council, the Ecumenical Strategic Partnership, and is a member of the Steering Committee for the Catholic Peacebuilding Network. So truly a distinguished group, we're eager to hear from them. Each of them will speak for about 10 minutes or less. I will follow those presentations with a few questions to them to begin our conversation. During the presentations and the initial discussion, please feel free to pose any questions that you may have to the panel using the Q and A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Those questions then uh, will be uh, fed to me uh, and uh, I will be able to pose them in turn to our panelists. So without further ado, I would invite the panelists to unmute uh, their microphones as well as their uh, video cameras. And I will turn uh, the floor over to Your Excellency Archbishop Katcha. Welcome. Thank you. Ambassador Glendon, uh, Dr. Carroza, Mr. Donnelly, Reverend Clergy and Religious, uh, dear ladies and gentlemen. It's a joy for me to be with you today as the world prepares to mark the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. And today we have also the liturgical memory of St. John Paul II. So we have a special blessing in this occasion. I would like to thank uh, the Lumen Christi Institute, the Kellogg Institute for International Studies and America Media for sponsoring today's event and to express my appreciation as well to the co-sponsoring institutions for their important collaboration. An anniversary is an opportunity to look to the past with gratitude for achievements and with humble resolution to learn from mistakes. It is also a chance to turn with the wisdom of experience to the present and with inform hope for the future. That's why we ponder together Catholic perspective on the UN at 75. I would like to give a brief, I try, a brief overview of the history of the relationship between the Holy See and the United Nations. I'm now going to share uh, a screen so that you can better visualize what I'm trying to say. During World War II, when the Allies, after the failure of the League of Nations, began to discuss the idea of a United Nations, 
Pope Pius XII was encouraged and encouraging. He gave Christmas address in which he promoted the need for a worldwide institution fostering peace, security, stability, and justice. He said in his uh, 1944 Christmas message that no one could wish success to this common effort more than he, and he urged the formation of such a global peace institution in line with the principle of solidarity, subsidiarity, and the common good. When the final uh, version of the UN Charter was proposed and adopted, however, he expressed concern that uh, rather than being an institution of equality among all nations, it was continuing the wartime alliance among the winning powers and making five countries patently unequal by giving them a permanent veto on the Security Council. It was also concerned about the fact that uh, other institutions of the UN, particularly the International Court of Justice and the General Assembly, lacked anything beyond the power of persuasion. Their resolution and decisions might end up being mere exhortations. As most experts on the UN will tell you, past the 12 initial concerns have been validated by history. Nevertheless, Pope Pius and many Catholic statesmen and scholars saw a deep overlap between the four pillars of the United Nations, Catholic social teaching and the Holy See diplomacy, making the participation of Catholics in the UN at its beginning vigorous and prominent. The preamble of the UN Charter, the peoples of the United Nations, resolved to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. And that's what Catholic peacemakers and peacebuilders have been doing from the earliest centuries of Christianity. The world's people jointly committed to promote human rights and the human dignity from which they flow. And Catholic teachings vigorously affirms the equal dignity of every person. They resolved to promote development in order to bring about social progress and better standards of life. And Catholic missionaries, the diocese, parishes, and religious orders have been working since the ancient diaconia to lift the poor out of poverty. And the people of the world determined to establish conditions of justice and promote adherence to international law and treaties. And the Holy See, for almost a thousand years, has been advocating the principle of pacta sunt servanda, which means that we have to honor our word and fulfill our commitments. Only 51 countries joined the United Nations 75 years ago this week. The OEC was not among them. Some countries were prevented because they were on the losing side of the war. Others because they could not meet the entrance requirements concerning troops or financial support. There was, however, a desire for non-member states to coordinate with the United Nations for the good of the world. The UN regularly invited the participation of the Holy See with regard to refugees, the promotion of peace through education, the sciences, and culture in UNESCO, the peaceful use of atomic energy, the care for the poor and the hungry across the globe, the protection of our seas 
and international waters, the population control movements, and various political questions concerning particular countries. The UN had long encouraged those countries who were not members to become observer states in the interest of improved communication and ultimately peace. The OEC became an observer state on April 6, 1964. 18 different countries have been observer state at some point in time. The status of observer states, however, was not spelled out in the UN Charter, and so their rights and responsibilities were not very clear. In 2004, the Holy See requested the General Assembly to define its rights and responsibilities as an observer state. The General Assembly did so in Resolution 58-314, which determined that the Holy See has all the rights and responsibilities of member states except the right to vote, to run for office, and to sponsor resolutions. This is the status of the Holy See that the Holy See maintains to this day. In 2012, the state of Palestine likewise became an observer state. To highlight the interaction of the Holy See and the United Nations, we can look at the visits of the popes and the words they said on these momentous occasions. There have been five papal visits, Paul VI in 1965, John Paul II twice in 1979 and 1995, Benedict in 2008, and Francis in 2015, and I would say also this year with a video message that was uh, broadcasted during the General Assembly. In their visits, the popes have emphasized several common themes, which I think are helpful to review as we examine the approach of the Holy See at the UN. The first is esteem for the importance of the UN, which the popes have said the world needs as a sign of unity among states and an instrument of service to the entire human family. Parallel with appreciation has been a constant papal call for it to be reformed so that it will meet the hopes and the, of the peoples and the world and the hopes that the world place in it. John Paul II stressed, for example, that the UN must become a true moral center and Pope Francis that it must become more effective in applying international norms. Third, the popes has said that the UN is in some way a political and diplomatic reflection of what the Catholic Church aspires to be spiritually. Truly Catholic means universal, serving all peoples everywhere and where all peoples feel they belong. The Pope also underlined that the UN is supposed to be a training school for peacemakers and peace builders in which people arrive as pupils and become and live as practitioners. Every Pope has called for the UN to live up to its mission to prevent the scourge of war and to work tirelessly to promote peace among nations and peoples. Fifth, they have insisted that the UN must perseveringly seek justice and that the international community must live up to the commitments it's made. 
Pope Francis five years ago warned against the UN's falling into what he termed declarationist nominalism, what we might refer to as virtue signaling in which solemn statements are not backed by deeds. Lastly, the Pope ever accentuated that the UN must defend the dignity of every person, especially those who are particularly vulnerable and whose rights are being trampled. Priorities of the Holy See, I just uh, make some points not to overgo my time. Peace, and we are working hard for nuclear elimination, nuclear weapons elimination, freedom, especially freedom of religious, and we take care of the persecution of Christian. Also, we had a lot in these times. Fundamental human rights, particular defense of life, of family. And so we are also working hard against trafficking, human trafficking. Inter intercultural dialogue, as we have seen the Pope is always doing everywhere he goes and so many initiatives. The care for migrants and refugees, the compact that were adopted. So they only see very much involved. And what we can say, human ecology, meaning the integral development and the taking care of our common home. I would like to summarize this talk by turning to what Pope Francis said in his encyclical Fratelli Tutti, published early this month. In talking about the UN 75th anniversary, he said that UN Charter is an obligatory reference point of justice and the channel of peace when it is observed and applied with transparency and sincerity. He likewise stressed, however, as popes always do, the need for a reform to the United Nations so that the concept of the family of nations can be effectively realized. He prophetically warned that the UN risks being delegitimized if its shortcomings are not addressed and resolved. So as we celebrate the UN's 75th birthday on Saturday, we applaud its many success on behalf of the peoples of the world, especially those who would ordinarily be left behind. But we likewise ponder the reforms it needs in order to be truly effective moving forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Your Excellency. Professor Glendon. Thank you. Uh Professor Carazza, good afternoon, everyone. And thank you, Archbishop Katja, for that wonderful overview of the relationship between the Holy See and the United Nations. I'd like to continue that theme for a bit with a few reflections on the role of laypersons, Catholic laypersons in the early UN. And um, I'd like to recall something that uh, mostly has been forgotten, and it is that back then, uh, 22 of the 51 original members of the United Nation were the Latin American delegations, and that made them the largest single block in the United Nations. And it is largely due to them 
that we owe the references to human rights in that beautiful language that we've just seen. Uh, it was thanks to uh, the Latin American delegations uh, leading another group of small nations that uh, the great powers finally had to agree to that wonderful language. It was definitely not part of an, the original vision of the big five. For them, the UN was supposed to be a peace and security organization period. So there was that Catholic influence at that very early stage, so important in that charter. And then when work began on drafting a universal declaration of human rights, the model, the chief model that was used by the framers was a draft of a document that became the Pan-American Declaration of the Rights and Duties of Man. It's more popularly known as the Bogota Declaration. And the Bogota Declaration, I think this has been forgotten too, the Bogota Declaration drew heavily on rerum novarum and quadragesimo anno. And if you read the sections of the Universal Declaration today, if you look at articles 22 and following, you will see that it is almost in haec verba from passages in rerum novarum. Some people say that the influence of the Bogota Declaration was simply because it was the only international Declaration of Human Rights that was available to the drafters of the UDHR at the time, but there was more of the story. The Bogota formulations of certain basic principles were not as individualistic as the Anglo-American documents that were available, and they were not as collectivist or statist as the socialist documents that were available. And so the first UN Commission on Human Rights saw that these formulations were particularly well suited for the purpose of a declaration that was going to purport to be universal, as well as in gaining approval from the UN General Assembly, which was already quite diverse. Now, as it happened, when the declaration was being debated and up for approval in 1948 in Paris, the Holy See's nuncio in France was none other than one Angelo Roncalli, the future Pope John XXIII. And we are told by uh, diplomats who were present at the time that uh, Roncalli went about discreetly lobbying for the adoption and approval of the declaration. And of course, you know that he later would praise it in Pachem in Terrace, but as Archbishop Kacha noted, he praised it already with certain reservations. And that has been uh, the pattern of all succeeding popes, a combination of encouragement and praise with words of caution. Even when support for human rights was probably at its highest point in 1989, Pope John Paul II warned that the declaration, he as a philosopher warned, that the declaration did not have the anthropological and moral bases for the human rights it contained. And those words of caution, of course, increased in the 1990s as Holy See officials began to express concerns again about the UN itself. There were the tumultuous conferences in Cairo and Beijing and evidence was accumulating of certain deficiencies in the UN with respect to 
the deficiencies of all large bureaucracies, uh, transparency, accountability, susceptibility to bias and susceptibility to co-option by special interests. Archbishop Augustin de Noia from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was one of the first prelates to point out that there was a deeper problem. He said, and I'm going to quote him here, the UN has been profoundly influenced by a secular anthropology that espouses the socially constructed character of truth, the priority of cultural diversity, and the deconstruction of moral norms. That mindset, he said, made it difficult often for the church's many aid agencies even to function. More recently, Archbishop Katja has eloquently expressed concern about attempts to reinterpret human rights in a way that fails to protect human dignity and that marginalizes religion. And as we have just seen, Pope Francis calls for reform of the UN in Fratelli Tutti. But nevertheless, and Joe Donnelly knows much more about this than I. Nevertheless, there are so many areas where the goals of the United Nations are highly compatible with the concerns of a church that oversees what is perhaps the world's largest network of humanitarian aid agencies. Joe will correct me on that, but I believe that's true. Uh, and this brings me to a question that was posed to all of us panelists on the, uh, in the preparation for this event. The question was, what does Catholic thought have to contribute to the realization of the UN's lofty ideals? I will throw out three ideas for starters for our discussion. The first is so obvious that I need only say the word subsidiarity. But except for the shining example of Professor Carazza, Catholic thought concerning the application of subsidiarity to international affairs is relatively undeveloped. As you know, in Quadragesimo Anno, Catholic social thought on subsidiarity was developed in relation to nation states and the institutions of civil society. But we need to keep, Professor Carazza, we need to keep working on the international dimension of the subsidiarity principle. Second, and relatedly, international bodies could benefit a great deal from Catholic understandings of pluralism. Many internationalists have a mindset that favors top-down approaches, and thus they have difficulty in understanding something that Catholics understand quite well, how you can have a small core of universal principles that are brought to life in pleasingly different ways in different cultural contexts without undermining those universal principles. Catholics get that instinctively, and Catholic thinkers could do more to promote that concept of legitimate pluralism, which John Paul II explained in his 1995 speech to the United Nations. My third suggestion, which follows from the other two and is very much in line with what Pope Francis says in Fratelli Tutti, I do believe it is time for an overview, an overall review of Catholic international relations theory, an overview that would carefully examine, evaluate the role of international organizations in today's much changing and multipolar world and explain how subsidiarity can work hand in hand with solidarity. 
Now I'll just conclude these preliminary thoughts with an observation about the importance of moral witness. When I was a student at the University of Chicago, I learned from my very secular professors how important Catholic thought had been for the world. And I'm very grateful for that. But let's not forget that Catholic thought had to be brought into the public square. It had to be brought to the world by men and women who were skilled, dedicated, and courageous enough to do so for them. As for the Holy See itself, there is, of course, always a tension between moral witness and ordinary political pressures. But I would suggest that the Catholic contribution has always been greatest and most durable when that tension is resolved in favor of moral witness. I'll stop there and thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Glendon. Mr. Donnelly. Thank you very much. I am really grateful, proud, and pleased to be with everybody this afternoon, as well our webinar participants all around the world who are dealing with evenings and mornings even. So thank you very much. And I would like to say, um, as is our view as Caritas and my view as Joe from New York, we NGOs are the window to reality at the UN. And we've even gotten some acclamation for saying that because much of the UN, although it has about 8,000 windows, most of them are not in the corridors where there's conference rooms and meetings. So there's an enclosure that means the voices of reality don't come in. With that, I would like to say that I will not repeat the incredible and brilliant presentations of the Archbishop and the Ambassador. I will speak as an advocate, as a layman, as an NGO, and as an FBO, because that's what we're here to do. And it is um, the sense of all three, the Ambassador, the Diplomat, the Ambassador, the Archbishop, the Church, and the Advocate, the second track diplomacy that we as NGOs practice. And I say that in threes because I believe all good things come in threes. Faith, hope, and charity, mother, father, children, you got the whole story. So here at the UN we say, one third of the member states love that there's NGOs here. One third say, no way, get them out. One third say, well, maybe if it works out, it's okay. And just to affirm that, there's a book that's only about uh, 12 years old, but it's called NGOs. It's a rather large tome. It talks about NGOs and human rights. And it's really a, uh, a seminal document to say how come, how, where, what, but not so many people have read the book. I highly recommend it. And that's just to say that, so we're here, we're here. And my point today would be to say, why are we here? Is it Catholic social teaching? Is it in the imitation of Christ? Is it the good shepherd, the good Samaritan? What mo motivates us to be here? So we with hundreds and thousands of others, and there's some who would say there are about 35,000 accredited NGOs around the world today versus the 41 who were here in the very beginning. So we came since 1946, and there has been a Catholic presence here all this time, all these 75 years, and building on everything before. And we saw what could be, we saw what wasn't happening, we saw the limitations, the lack of access, but we sort of conquered a little bit because today we are respectfully present and we are welcomed into the conversation in any number of ways. And we have tried to break new ground. The very building I sit in here is owned by the Methodist Church, which houses 44 NGOs so that there would be an NGO presence in the face of the UN. And that conversation would be there and we would be seen as accessible, visible and engaging. 
as the Archbishop and the Ambassador have said, there are any number of ways to do that, from the uh, endless details in documents, from the enjoyment of the UN and the diplomatic community with the arrival of Laudato Si five years ago, which was an astonishing um, engagement from the Echo Sock Chamber, but everywhere since. So people are paying attention to the voices, the moral imperatives of faith-based NGOs, as well as humanitarian, experiential, research, expert NGOs all around the world. We are just one of them. But Caritas, just as an example of the commitment of the church, we're the second largest humanitarian NGO network in the world after the Red Cross. So that means something. That means that we're present. We're present through the church, through the religious community, through the laity, through dioceses all around the world, through Catholic charities all over the world. And while no one comes across the street and throws incense at us or puts you know, flowers at our doorstep, most member states highly regard the presence of, of the faith-based NGOs. And in particular, we get a lot of respect for our commitment on the ground that we're present, that we are always present. And as we say to our colleagues in, in the UN OCHA department and UNDP, we're everywhere you're supposed to be. We're often there hand in hand with you. And we're there, we don't leave, we stay longer. And as Kofi Annan, when he was Secretary General said, most of my trips to the field, 85% of my time is meeting NGOs. And a good portion of that is with faith-based NGOs who are committed to the local community. If we take that full speed to 20, 2016 to 2020, the major issue in the humanitarian community today is localization. Be there with the people. Do not talk about problems without the people. And helping to build on the SDGs and the Agenda 2030 of the UN is to say, do not build the future for us, build the future with us. What is the world we want? What would grandmothers want for their children, for their grandchildren, for their great-grandchildren, so that the good that is intended really gets passed on? So that's kind of how we happen to be here. And in the beginning of all of this um, dynamic post-World War II challenge was to say multilateralism and fraternity were what we hoped would flourish. And with that, the more contemporary language of partnership, of deliberate partnership, partnership not symbolic, partnership with participation, and out of that unity, unity among peoples. We the peoples, we the peoples, as Bernard Klicksberg talks about all the time, people first, people always, people always at the start of the game and not afterwards, it's people versus profit. So that's something that is, I think, galvanized in the past few years and really been strengthened by the commitments of faith-based NGOs around the world and secular NGOs. We say, as Thomas Merton often said from his monastery in, in uh, Kentucky, places like people have an identity all their own, especially places like this one that I'm looking at across the street, where people go from joy to suffering and hopefully back to joy. But today, people are not looking to be spoken for, they be asked to be spoken with, to be partners in a process that can make life-saving differences. And that's, that's how CARE, CRS, Amnesty, Anglicans, Presbyterians, Quakers, Lutherans, Catholics, Orthodox, all over the world, Islamic Relief Society, American Jewish Committee, we are all in this together as faith-based principled organizations that have, in essence, NGO status. So we get these tags, and that allows us to have some kind of access. So they're all tagged. But if you notice real close, there's an N on this. If you can see here, I'm holding it right. Yes, there's the N. The N means non, non, non. 
And that's a big issue in the NGO community, in the civil society community, because nobody wants to be an X or a non. We want to be who we are. So with all due respect to our colleagues here on the panel, there are Ds, there are Ss, there are Rs, and those things are distinctions. The UN is quintessentially, imperatively filled with distinctions that are supposed to be helpful, that can make a useful difference, but sometimes are quite discriminatory. And I won't get into that now, but it's just to say, if we who have access have these kind of tags, and I brought maybe five of my other tags, and I have about 50 of these for the various meetings where I found access through these years, what about the people we represent? The people from Cabo Delgado in the north of Mozambique who have been tortured by in impossible situations, the people in Bangui and Kar, the people in Gaza, in Syria, in Miramar. How do we represent those people and what motivates us to do that? It's really very simple, it's fundamental. It's to say, love your neighbor. And the question would be, without question, I'm doing a little bit of show and tell here because they didn't bring slides. Who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? My neighbor is my sister, my brother, the, the homeless lady downstairs in the building here in the street, the mental patient on the bus this morning who was pushing people around to, to get attention, the homeless person in, in Colombia, in Bogota, the people on the border with Venezuela who are saying, do I count? Do I mean anything? The more that we can bring that human evidence to the table, whether it's the Security Council Working Group, whether it's the Central Africa Policy Forum, whether it's the Ending Homelessness Working Group on right to adequate housing, right to education, right to religious freedom. It's not our voices that count, it is the voices of the people we represent. Part of my show and tell here is to have you see, look around this office for the visibility you can see. It's the voices and the echoes and images of the people we serve, the people the church is committed to, not as a, a, a dutiful, obligatory mandate, but as the love of God to be with people, to be God's people here. And we say, and I'm really rushing through my talk here to fill up the, the, the information I prepared for you. I've worked on this talk for about a month to say what doesn't need to be said and what should be said. So right now, today, we have an engagement in the world in the 75th anniversary of the UN to say it can no longer be what it was. The world has changed dramatically. And as we talk from Harvard to University of Chicago to Loyola to Notre Dame to America Magazine, where I've often had the chance to, to write and bring this story to the table, the Jesuits have been a part of this conversation it has to change. And I think that Fratelli Tutti has been a, a moral invitation to all of us to say, no more status quo, no more business as usual. As Pope Francis has said rather emphatically, go to the periphery, leave your comfort zone. And that is what we try as Caritas, but as CRS, as all kinds of Catholic and faith-based organizations here to bring the diplomats, the Security Council experts, to the periphery and to bring back to the UN, whether it's here in New York or Geneva or Addis Ababa, to the table, the realities, the evidence that there is an alternative information. Years ago, an undersecretary general said to me, you know, Joe, what's with all this accompaniment? What does that really mean? How do, how do you accompany people? I said, how do you accompany? You walk with them. You walk in their shoes, as we've heard. You see them up close. 
Pope Francis has said to us as humanitarian faith-based organizations, don't tell me you're an NGO and you have blah, 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 strategic blah, 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 blah. Tell me the name of the last person you met. Embrace that person. Dialogue with that person. Do you know the name of the lady you spoke to in the square? If you don't, you did not accompany her. You did not respect her. You did not see her. When I was in a rather incredible moment in Central African Republic, at a meeting of about 10 peace and justice experts, all men, there was one woman, and it was the first time a woman was invited. And I kind of tried to speak to her in my poor broken French. And eventually she said, see me, hear me, love me. And when you go back to New York, remind the diplomats that 52% of the world are women, that here in Bangui, in Central African Republic, a very difficult situation, women carry the burden of life and, and are resilient and hope to bring it forward in another new way if the men let us talk. And she grabbed my hand and she said, I think you will never forget me. And I said, oh, there's no chance I'll ever forget you in my broken French and her broken English. But she said, and if you forget me, if you leave me in Bangui, I will haunt you and God will accompany me haunting you. So that's to say, that's the good news, bad news. We have a job to do. It's the job that I think Pope Francis uniquely understands. When I met him one month after he was he was elected Pope, he said he wanted to speak to the dude, the guy at the UN. And he said, oh, you have a hard job. I will pray for you. When I met him a month later, he said, I don't think you're praying for me. My job is much harder than yours. And people don't necessarily listen to us. And I said, oh, it's difficult. He said, okay, you keep praying for me. I'll pray for you. But let's make sure they know we're in the UN. We're present. And two of his predecessors on the job as Holy Father, several of the predecessors of Archbishop Patrick have said, if the UN didn't exist, the church, the Pope, would be responsible for motivating people from a morally responsible way to say, we need something that brings us together, that holds us together, and that builds the unity, regardless of need or creed, etc. but to bring people together as the one human family we are and we share, and to share the earth that is ours. We have taken all these gifts from God, we have used them, maybe exploited them, and certainly we know there's lots of greedy people who exploit for power, for money, for abuse, for trafficking, for all kinds of destructive things, exploiting natural resources. But the bottom line, everywhere we go, there are people working very hard to preserve, to protect. And so part of that preserve and protect is also for us as civil society, as FBOs, as NGOs, to be in dialogue with the UN, with the diplomatic community to say, how do we plan the next 25 years? What would the UN at 100 look like? Will there even be a UN? And how will it function? And those are the things that it's really a privilege to, to work with so many people about. Pope John Paul, St. John Paul, when he came to New York in 1979, he said, to be truly human, a city needs a soul. You, the people, must give it this soul. I think it is one of the most eloquent, on-the-spot echoes. And he said it here in New York, where we know something about diversity and challenge, etc. And it's not one of the phrases that's often repeated, but it is the heart of the matter about what it means to be one human family in the 21st century. 
not the 20th century after all the destruction, what have we benefited from what we've learned, what we've done, good and bad, as Ambassador Marion has said? What can we do, what we know to be the moral imperative in the 21st century, to build back better together? Not to build back better for profit, but to build back better together for people, with people, through people. And I would just try to wrap up and say the other point of view is to remember that today, it's the anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So where were we then? What did we think? Where are we today? And Cuba is one of the 193 flags that fly across the street just about every day. And there's 193 of them plus two. The plus two is the Holy See mission to the UN and the permanent observer mission of Palestine. So there is a recognition that things have changed a great deal and they can change more. And to build a civil society that really sustains life is the call we all have. And finally, I would just say, a door opens to us. We enter. And in entering that door diplomatically, academically, ecclesiastically, as a Chicago sociologist said back in the 60s, then you have 100 more doors to go through if you have the courage and the political will to be there. So we recognize that as our challenge. And I'm really grateful and honored to be a part of this conversation today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Well, uh, there are already questions coming in through the Q&A uh, function, and, uh, and we, we inevitably will have more limited time than we would like. So let me just start by posing a few questions, and then we'll try to take some from our audience as well. Uh, so uh, uh, Archbishop Katcha, it is striking to me, um, listening to your narrative, how much uh, the great and so social encyclicals of all of the popes of the last 60, 70 years have contributed at key moments, important openings to the, and contributions to um, the mandate and the work of the UN. You think of, as you, as you mentioned, Pacem in and the call to peace, uh, Popolo in Progressio and the call to development. So much of the work of John Paul II opened us up to the ideals of freedom, human rights, democracy. And, uh, and as we heard from Joe Donnelly, uh, and, and I recall myself you know, being there with him uh, to talk about it, Laudato Si was like a, an explosion within the General Assembly in a certain sense. And you mentioned now uh, the latest encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, which has uh, everybody mentioned in one way or another. But beyond the, the very generic call uh, to both reform and work with the United Nations, in terms of the great social themes that it takes up, what, what do you think will be next? What, what does Fratelli Tutti add to the discussion? What might it elicit within the United Nations uh, in terms of its, its distinctive contribution? Where, where, where will it bring us and what, what will it contribute? You, you will need to unmute your microphone. Okay, sorry. You know, uh, we, we experience a consensus in the world because when uh, Jesus was asked uh, uh, what the most important commandment uh, and say, okay, love God, love your neighbor. Yes, correct. And we, we share. 
this vision. But the question is, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus started telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, what the Pope is trying to repeat in another way is that uh, we need to approach life with this spirit, the spirit of somebody who doesn't pass by globalization of indifference, the spirit of somebody who is moved, who recognize in the wound of the world something that concerns each one. And uh, in a way, is putting a picture what we see. And the question is, do we want to do something? Or we just, we know that we have to love God and our neighbor and that's it. But we don't ask who is our neighbor. And so the Pope is inviting to pass from a very individualistic perspective, which is be, could be personal, I, but could be also national, could be a block of nation, kind of interests, to move from the I to the we, and to feel that whatever happens to somebody anywhere concerns ourselves, and we want to build on a different basis. This appeal to fraternity means it's, it's a kind to say, open your eyes. You can't pretend to be safe in a world we seek. You can't pretend to have your good water there where the water is polluted. You can't pretend to be safe in your small world if there is injustice everywhere. It's a kind of an appeal. Open your eyes. And when you're open, you have choices to make. You can pass by, do as usual, thinking that maybe it's not so bad, we can continue, and the other uh, will face the problems. Or you feel concerned, you feel moved. And so you take care. And this is a feeling which unites so many people beyond ethnicity, beyond countries, beyond borders, beyond religions, beyond colors. And in that sense, it goes back to we the peoples of the United Nations. In that sense, the United Nations doesn't work if the world doesn't think in a certain way. Because there is the reflection of what's going on. The Pope calls us to change our mindset and then we will see also results in the institutions. And so I think this is a, a kind of appeal as the COVID uh, obliged everyone to sit down, to realize that there is nothing so urgent that cannot be done tomorrow or next week, or uh, <laughs> taking the time to see what are we doing, pause, what is the future if we continue like this? And so, and in this appeal, there is also an example, the parable of the Good Samaritans, a foreigner 
one was not the mainstream, but did the right things. There are many good things going on. And we have to take uh, these examples and put them into our life, change our mentality. I think it is in line what the Pope once said about the church and the Christians in particular. The church is a, a failed hospital where ev everyone can come and find hope, can find care, or he wanted the jubilee of mercy. What does it mean? That the world is wounded. It's like the man on the road. And we need good Samaritans. If we don't get into this perspective, world won't change. And these are very concrete because also it says, what does it mean with investments, with politics, with e economy, with pollution? And so I think it's a strong appeal to encourage us to rediscover the best all human beings have and to put it together. Thank you so much. Professor Glendon, you, you made a strong appeal uh, from a Catholic perspective to the importance of pluralism, um, pluralism in general, but in particular, of course, in an area that you've written so richly about, and that is human rights. And yet, of course, even if we acknowledge and embrace uh, the value of pluralism, we have to recognize that within the context of the United Nations, many of the voices that are represented in, in that pluralism are of voices that uh, take perspectives that are quite radically different than the moral perspectives informed by the Catholic understanding of the human person, whether it's uh, a nihilistic secularism, or whether it is uh, the Communist Party of China uh, and its perspective on human rights, uh, or even perhaps a sincerely religiously informed but still quite different understanding of human equality that might be espoused by, say, the Islamic Republic of Iran. So how do we both uh, value the pluralism that you tell us is so important in this context, and also bear witness to the distinctive understanding of the human person uh, and the truth of the human person that as Catholics, we, we, we believe and we've been educated to hold to. Well, that's a real puzzle, no doubt about it. Uh, but we do have a set of principles in the preamble to the UN Charter, a, sense of a set of principles that the nations agreed upon. And keeping in mind what John Paul II said about uh, what those principles rest on, he pointed out quite correctly that uh, there is no commonly agreed foundation for them. So what we have is consensus. And consensus from the philosopher's point of view isn't much, but it's what we've got. And I think we have to work very hard on building on the consensus that those principles represent. And just to give you one example, there, the, the beautiful language about better standards of life in larger freedom. Uh, with all the diversity within the world and within the UN, uh, there is a tendency to think that political and civil rights have to be 
opposed to social and economic rights, that they are uh, permanently at odds with one another. Catholic social thought teaches that they are not. And empirical evidence that we have today suggests that actually they reinforce one another. And I think there, there's uh, it, it's one of the many ways in which uh, Catholics are like the leaven in the loaf, that they, they can um, challenge these understandings. Um, why do these things have to be treated as opposed? Why do people treat the Universal Declaration as a menu from which you can pick and choose when it's very clear in international law that those rights are interdependent? They're mutually reinforcing. And when they seem to be in conflict, you have to work on an accommodation that does not leave anything out. So it's that's what politics is all about. And uh, we uh, politics is a is a great thing if you understand it as the art of, uh, as Aristotle said, ordering our lives together. So uh, I would. Um, since we are mentioning characters from the Gospels, uh, I would remind people of the story of the woman in Luke's gospel. She was very much like those Latin American and other small nations delegates in the beginning of the UN. They just won out by sheer persistence. There's the, there's the woman who won't leave the unjust judge alone. And finally, the big five, they were like the unjust judge. They said, okay, all right, we'll give you those human rights. You can have them in seven places. So. Persistence, goodwill, prayer. Wonderful, thank you. All right, Mr. Donnelly, um, so we, we heard uh, Professor Glendon's appeal to subsidiarity. We saw in the quotation from Fratelli Tutti uh, that the nuncio uh, gave us a, a reference to, you know, a wariness about um, cultural impositions and ideological schemes. and. Um, you know, you, you uniquely here have the perspective of seeing the work of the UN from the bottom up, from the capillaries of where that work takes place and civil society. So I wonder what, what you would say and, and how you would articulate for us, what would subsidiarity actually look like if really respected in the context of the work of the UN better, the way that Pope Francis and uh, and Catholic thought before him has actually uh, called for. What, what, what does that actually mean in practice from your point of view? That's a great question, Paolo. I appreciate it. And relying on the wisdom, insight, and expertise of Ambassador Marianne and Archbishop Katia, I would say I'll turn my head a little bit more to the academic and intellectual side of doing this kind of work. In the, in the UN community, it's seen that there is the governments, the UN experts, and the third group, the intelligent people who talk about doing something practically from the ground up. That subsidiarity means we have to be partners with each other. Again, back to localization, that we know from whom the issue comes. It's my water, it's my neighbor's water. It's an indigenous community that are completely ignored everywhere else, but we see them and we say to the government, these are your people and they are God's people. 
and we say to other people in a particular country, say in the Amazonas region, what are all what good are all these resources if we're allowing your national systems to exploit your very own people here? And then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with the products of that exploitation, with the funds, the issues, you know, with your leather shoes made in Brazil, with your shirts made in China, with your furniture made in Indonesia. Are we subscribing to that? Do we dare ask the questions? And I think the experience of subsidiarity from the ground up is to say, know what you're talking about. Talk to us before you talk to governments. And then when you talk to governments, talk with us, not just for us. And so one of the things we do, and I think a very subsidiary way, and it's a practice of the partnership and the solidarity of Caritas, we invite people from the ground up to come to New York, many at great risk because of human rights intimidation issues that get put upon them and being followed. We bring them to New York as we had somebody here from Cameroon not long ago and Colombia for 15 years every year. And we allow diplomats to ask the questions and to hear what people living these realities, men, women, sisters, priests, laity, young people, more and more the UN is saying, okay, we listen to those older people. How about some voices from the next generation, which is an imperative right now for what Agenda 2030 could be. So to me, it's practice what you preach. And it's not so much the words, it's the show and tell as I started off earlier this afternoon. What are we talking about? If you have a diamond ring, you're a man or a woman, where did that diamond come from? Do we dare ask that question? And and the whole wave of blood diamonds, it's blood diamonds, it's blood water, it's blood timber, it's blood golden in our mobile, mobile phones. The extraordinary exploitation is an absolute constant contradiction to the, the intelligence and the humanity of good subsidiarity and authentic solidarity and not just slogans on walls and posters in major stadiums or whatever or on transportation. It's people, people first, people always. That's what it was always all about. That's what it should be all about. And the only way the UN will come out of this incredible challenge of 2020 is to keep front and center about human rights, people's rights. And they, from our point of view as Catholic social thought, they are given by God. They're not given by governments. They're, they're yours, they're yours. And you can't take them away from us. And it is impressively moving and compelling from an inspiration point of view to meet people who dare to come to the UN table in this country or elsewhere to defend the rights of others, not just their own, but the rights of their communities. That is absolutely what it's all about. Terrific, thank you. We have so many questions. We have barely a few minutes, uh, but there's one question uh, that has been posed by someone in our audience, which I, I think would be interesting to ask all three of you, because all of you have had the experience of working very practically within the institutions of international politics and diplomacy. Um, and we all know, even as external observers, and, and I also have worked in those institutions, so I speak from internal as, as well, um, how much they're rife with bureaucracy, with systemic inefficiencies, uh, with certain forms of institutional corruption. 
Um, so to not put a fine point on it, I mean, we've all seen that in recent weeks, um, the elections to the Human Rights Council have brought there a variety of countries that we know to be large-scale systemic violators of human rights. So in general, what, what does it mean in a, in, a, in a context like that, where there is uh, both bureaucratic inertia and systemic corruption or uh, sclerosis, if nothing else, um, to, to operate in a way that you know, carries the, the, the moral witness that, that uh, Professor Glendon talked about of, of faith and of transcendence and of uh, the human person that as Catholics we bear with us. Um, how, how does one do that in, effectively in an environment that uh, politically is, is undoubtedly very compromised? And I pose that to all three of you, so. <laughs> yes, this is, a, this is a question. There are a different approach. They, idealists, they think that the, the world should be as they think. And the other, they say that the, the world is as it is. <laughs> and so, first of all, we don't have to judge, but accept and understand. Because maybe behind something, there is a reason. Those who wake up uh, one day and they think that uh, they know how to solve the problems, it's good. But maybe if they start reading some books, looking some years back, they see that the same problems have been dealt by many people. So I would say not get uh, easily to kind of judgment, disease, disease, disease. Try to understand why, because there are way in answering questions that don't solve the problem. Second, so not judgmental, not say, oh, that you don't know, that you don't understand, you don't. Second, witnessing. Are there other ways to do? Can you show me the way? What do you do? So witnessing is very important because uh, sometimes uh, we are very much united when we say that's wrong. Okay, second step, what could be done? Where are examples? So Jesus presented an example. He didn't solve the problem of general uh, situation between uh, this, uh, the Samaritans and the other peoples, uh, the religions. He presented an example. From that example, we can reconsider the bigger picture. So good practices, witnessing. Jesus sent to be witness of some value in which we believe. And of course, uh, there is also goodwill. There are plenty of people of goodwill to be united. When, when people try sincerely to reach a common goal, there are many ways to do that. And what I experienced at the United Nations, at least at the level of human relations, I feel I can talk to everyone and I feel respected and I feel a, a sense of uh, common responsibility and joy to be together, even if some countries have very different positions on many issues. Uh, there is a special thing about the United Nations because each one represents his own country, but back in the mind, 
there is the idea that they represent the world from the perspective of their country. And very good things can come up, come out from this uh, situation. So I'm confident that uh, there could be a way to correct what is wrong. But if we approach in a certain way. Thank you. It's a fascinating question. It's a question that everybody can, confronts in some way in daily life. Uh, when is a situation so beyond remedy that you don't feel you can do anything? Uh, but if, you, if there is a chink or an opening, how do you exploit it? Uh, one of the things that uh, I think is very uh, helpful is read the biographies of the people who accomplished great things in seemingly impossible situations. Think about Edmund Burke, uh, an Irish outsider in England uh, with four great freedom causes, India, Ireland, others. He, uh, he got an awful lot done against enormous odds. It takes enormous skill, enormous wisdom, and there will be times, as Plato tells us in the laws, when the only thing a wise man can do is retreat and say prayers for his country. Joe, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Certainly, I would, I would affirm what we've just heard from our two distinguished panelists. But to say without question, the bureaucracy is insidious, it's huge, it's voluminous, and it could seem altogether impossible, but it's not. And I think too many people, including many NGOs, but also diplomats say, oh, you can get nothing done. So there's a hopelessness that breeds there and hopelessness leads to helplessness. I think that Pope Francis in an extraordinary clear way with his uh, deep sense of the peoples of the ground has said, do you have the facts? Do you have objectivity? And do we dare to say, maybe I don't know? And do we admit that dialogue is difficult? And that's part of what the invitation of Fratelli Tutti is to say, the, the fraternity of humanity, the social friendships that we walk together and we don't judge together. As the Pope has said very clearly, who am I to judge? In my work here in the beginning, I began to say, Humanity has a tendency to negativity. Somehow that's been imposed by different structures and different economies, et cetera, et cetera, and different cultures. That has to be redeemed and released. And as Dak Hamishel, the famous secretary general said, without a spiritual renaissance, we won't have peace. We won't have clarity. We won't be able to help people. So I think that's where it's at. And, and I think that's an admission that whether we're sitting in the Congo, DRC Congo, whether we're sitting in Boston, Massachusetts, or Chicago, Illinois, or San Francisco, where the UN actually wrote the document uh, 75 years ago, there's always another side to the story. And I think that what I learned from academics through the years is, do you have the facts? Are you being objective? You're entitled to your opinion, of course. But is it based on facts, evidence, or is it a highly subjective, personalized opinion. And the last thing I would just like to say for the record is the UN building, I'm not as old as the UN building. I'm no, wait a minute. 
I'm not as old as the UN, which is 75 years old today, but I am as old as the building and I'll leave it to the mathematicians to figure that one out. But I learned that one day when somebody was looking at me across the meeting and said, you're as old as the building. I leave it at that, but it's a beautiful building of the global family if you really want to be a part of it. And I really believe to love your neighbor means to love the other and to be open to that, that possibility. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm afraid I've already dragged this beyond what was our designated stopping time. Um, but even so, I, I can't resist having one closing sentence from each of you uh, um, as a way of wrapping this, this conversation up. And, um, and I'll, I'll present it this way. Um, many of us here, I think all, all four of us on the screen now, and certainly many people who are listening, would hope that there is not just a 75th, but a 100th anniversary of the UN. And uh, that in these 25 years to come, uh, the, reform, the call for reform will have been heeded and the orientation towards the common good will have been taken up and Catholics will have taken a leading role in making those changes effective. So for those who are listening and particularly for the many young people who might be listening, who might be thinking about their future, in just a sentence, what would you say to them? What should they do in order to make the next 25 years truly fruitful ones for the relationship between the Catholic Church and the United Nations? I was a young when uh, Pope uh, John Paul II was elected, and I still remember his sentence, don't be afraid. I would say to the young people, don't be afraid, keep going. Thank you. And I'll take a line from scripture that has meant a lot to me. Always be ready to give a reason for the faith that is in you. And I'll follow the ambassador's direction there and say my most important scriptural quote that reflects on my work here and work on Caritas, if we live by the truth and we if we live by the truth and in love, we will grow in all ways into Christ who is our head and the members filling up the parts of what it is. And that is the living mosaic of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to all three of you on behalf of uh, not just uh, the Lumen Christi Institute, the Kellogg Institute, uh, America Media and the Holy See. Uh, mission, but I'm sure I speak on behalf of the well over 200 people who are listening today and participating in this conversation, which has been uh, very rich and only too short, unfortunately. Uh, but you've given us so much to reflect on, to think about, and indeed to act upon. And for that, uh, we're all so very grateful. I'll just add an, a special thanks in particular by name to two people behind the scenes who have made this possible by all of their indefatigable work, Michael Le Chevalier at Lumen Christi Institute and Teresa Hanlon at the Kellogg Institute and wish all of you a very good afternoon and evening. And thank you for being with us here today on this Memorial of St. John Paul II. Thank you and good night. Thank you.